Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department, where I study planetary systems. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I study some things that you're going to hear about today. Yay! Excited! <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to episode 22, The Stargazing Automata, part 2. This is the second in a series of Astro Soundbites about various machine learning topics, and today we're excited to be discussing random forest algorithms. Very excited. Ooh, random forests. Lots and lots of forests on this podcast. It's a common <laughs> term, Lyman Alpha forests. and Forests from the trees. Mm -hmm. Did that have to do with Lyman Alpha forests? It might have. <laughs> we, I remember you making the joke hearing, or the fourth from the Astroma tree. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. That, we, that definitely made an appearance. We love our trees on Astro Sound Bites. Oh, yeah, we did that one <laughs> with the trees, uh, if you could detect trees on an exoplanet by shadows. Remember that? Oh, that's oh, true. Oh, that's true. Oh, trees are the best. We, we love rock. trees. Big fan. <laughs> All right, keep, keep All moving. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, for just a brief recap, in case you missed part one, uh, we wanted to rediscuss just exactly what machine learning is. And so this is an umbrella term that encompasses a lot of different methods where machines learn patterns to make predictions about the properties of new input data. So in classical programming, we generally need to write new lines of code for every new application because the code doesn't know how to do anything that it wasn't told exactly how to do. Whereas machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence that circumvents this, and the system can instead learn from data and make decisions with pretty minimal human intervention. It's the beginning of the end of uh, humankind's reign on this planet. The machines are coming. <laughs> <laughs> to start us off, uh, Will, can you tell us just a little bit about what a random forest algorithm is, since that'll be the overarching theme for today's discussion? You got it. So a forest is made of trees, and a random forest is made of decision trees. A decision tree is a way of classifying a group of objects by breaking the set into subsets based on questions. At the juncture of each branch of the tree is a question, and depending on the answer, it's usually a binary, uh, yes or no. You divide the group into two subgroups and then divide them and so on and so on until you get to the top of the tree which is the leaves, and each leaf represents a grouping under the same category. You could also have, instead of a binary uh, separation, a threshold of your particular feature in your data set. So say if this value of this feature is above some threshold or below it, then you make a split based on that decision. Is that not a binary, though? It's either above or below. It can't be some third option. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, that, that's my point, is like there are no three branches meeting at the same point in a decision tree. I mean, in theory, you could. It's just not how they're done. Right. So in order to make these decisions, you need to know something about your inputs, right? So does that make this supervised learning? It does. Right. You absolutely need to train 
this machine learning algorithm before it can be used. Mm -hmm. Decision trees are incredibly useful for classifying things. Uh, so if you wanted to classify dogs, for instance, you might start by dividing them into large dogs and small dogs. And at some point you would divide them into pointy ears versus floppy ears. And then at the end, you might uh, divide it into good boys and bad boys. <laughs> there are only good boys. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> the real power of a random forest, though, is uh, that it's made up of lots of different decision trees. Exactly. Right? So an individual decision tree could overfit like crazy to the particular data set that you feed it. But the fact that you have lots of different decision trees and each one trains on only a subset, a randomly generated subset of your full training data, uh, you get a much more robust answer. So how do you decide how many trees to make your forest? That's tough. Yeah, so this is a question of hyperparameter tuning. And there are algorithms in Python that have been developed to search through a hyperparameter space and return the values of different metrics, uh, depending on what metric for success uh, or accuracy or whatever you want to, uh, however you want to evaluate your your method. But basically, people just play around with different values. I, I don't think there's like a physical intuition for how many trees you would expect to use. Do you generally expect them to be kind of foresty, like hundreds of trees, or is it going to be like three trees, typically? I think the scikit-learn implementation, the default is a thousand trees. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a real forest. It's a forest. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Now, why do you need so many trees? That's what it comes down to. What's, what's wrong with one? You know, why, why do you even need to randomly generate these trees? I mean, as Alex said, it, it really comes down to the fact that trees are great at the job, but they get too good. They're so good at their job, they can't do anything else. So once you've built a classification system for dogs, it'll be so specific to the dogs you had to train on that if you give it one dog that kind of looks different, it could just panic and not know what to do with it or put it into a, a wrong class. It's really like a microcosm for a democratic society where you maybe don't trust one full tree completely, but lots of trees each have a little bit of the information instead of the full picture and each one votes and then you come up with the final answer based on some combination of everybody's vote. That's a great way of putting it because that's exactly how it works in the end. You, When you have a random forest, each tree generated by a random subset of the actual data, so it's not seeing the full picture, when you put them all together and you give it something it hasn't seen, you sum up the votes of where everybody's going to classify that and you say, okay, the, the majority rules. Yeah, it's a good thing there's no electoral college in random forests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that random forests are a type of classifier. So what types of problems would you want to apply this type of algorithm to? So you mentioned classification. What's interesting is that I, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure random forests were originally developed for classification, but they've also been modified to be able to do regression now, so with a continuous response variable. So with those two different random forest implementations, you can really do lots of different things. I mean, for classification, typically you look at a thing in the sky that flickers and you want to know exactly what that thing is. So classifying astrophysical sources is a really common use of random forests. I think both of us are going to be talking about that in more detail in a moment yeah for sure yeah so going from photometry to quasars stars galaxies things like that uh, but then for regression i mean photometric redshifts are are a really big deal right now and are going to be increasing utility in upcoming surveys so 
I think random forests, you're going to see some use there as well. So by regression, you mean like fitting a function? Yeah, by regression, I mean you don't just have it's a type 1c supernova or it's a superluminous supernova. You have, say, features of a galaxy, and I, you want to know what redshift the galaxy is at. And it, it's I not, see. is it redshift 0.01 or is it redshift 2? It could be anything, you know? It's a sliding scale. Exactly. Gotcha. Continuous variable. One of the things that I came across when I was looking into random forests um, is that they output the attributes that are most important for classification. Um, one of the examples that's a real-world example is they use random forests to determine what makes people most likely to default on their loans because then you use a higher interest rate for those people so the banks can profit. And turns out that like that has led historically to some really nasty racism and sexism issues. And that's part of, of why equal lending practices prohibit using race or sex or marital history, so on, the, these protected classes from being used to distinguish people for different interest rates when applying for loans. It works well, but almost too well, kind of wrong. I will say the nice thing about using a random forest over something like a neural network is that you can dig into the code and figure out exactly where it came to each decision and what decision it made to determine the final classification. So you can really break down. I mean, if you want, you can visualize your entire set of trees and learn for a particular set of inputs exactly how you got to the output. So if you see biased practices arising within your, your dichotomy, then you can flag it there and say, this is not something I want to propagate. That's a great point. Is that difficult to do if you have like a thousand trees though, or do you see the same thing in every tree pretty much? So that's a great question. I think, so this kind of ties into the question of what is random in a random forest. So we talked about random subsets of data in different trees, but then there's also at each split, the algorithm looks for a random subset of features to determine what that uh, that binary is going to be. And so the trees can look fairly different, but you can pull up a couple of different trees and ensure that the distinctions that it's making at least reflect physical intuition, even if they might be different physical intuition between the trees. Right. And I was also wondering, because I think there are like specific ways to distinguish whether random forests are performing well, right? So could you elaborate a little bit on those? Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, a term you'll hear come up a lot in random forests and in machine learning is the bias variance trade-off. So you want your algorithm to be good enough to learn enough from your data to reflect maybe underlying physics in the case of, of some astrophysical problem, but you don't want it to be so, I guess, pliable that it learns every little bump and wiggle in your data and then overfits and then... It's not generalizable. Exactly, exactly. So the bias captures the overprediction or underprediction of our results, right? So you could have underfitting if you have a strong bias, whereas the variance captures how much our prediction would change when given different data. So you're generally wanting to find some minimum of the combination of those two things, and it's trade-off. Right, and you do that by, like, chopping off branches, right? <laughs> or right. clipping so, leaves? I'm not really sure what the term is. Pruning, pruning the trees, <laughs> yeah. I think the official term is astrophysical gardening. Ah, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> but, no, exactly, yeah. So, generally, you want a model that's as simple as possible with as much predictive power as possible. And so, if you have tons of trees with an enormous number of layers, then that could be hugely overfitting your data. And so that's actually a hyperparameter that you can tune is how many trees do you use? How many layers do you use? Things like that. Right. 
And Alex, we know that you actually work on random forests within your own research and you apply them. So I'm pretty excited to hear a little bit about that. Could you just start by jumping in and telling us some more about the applications of random forests and astronomy and what you have done in your recent work? Definitely. Yeah. So the kind of big picture where lots of people are working right now is photometric classification of supernovae. And what that means is just looking at individual colors of the supernova as opposed to a full spectrum from that supernova. Can you tell what class of supernova it is? Why not just get a spectrum? That's a great question. In a perfect world, we would get a spectrum for every event, but in these deep upcoming surveys that are going to scan huge portions of the sky, it's very expensive to get a spectrum of each object you see. And so the goal would be to photometrically classify these events really quickly so that you identify which ones you want to follow up in more detail later. Order of magnitude, how many of these events would we expect to see with, say, the Vera Rubin Observatory in a given night? Do you know? Vera Rubin Observatory is going to discover on order 100,000 luminous supernovae per year in deep mode. Whoa. So that's on order 1,000 per, per night. Yeah, I can see why you can't get spectra of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Right. So it, this is, again, really hard to do because the classes for supernovae were originally determined by looking at spectra, right? By saying this spectrum is different from this spectrum. Luckily, the supernovae reflect kind of physical differences. And so that information is also imprinted on photometry, on the color changes of that supernova. And so the two main areas that you want to be able to do this for, the first is cosmology, right? So if you can find all of the type 1a supernovae, then those supernovae are really interesting to get uh, accurate distances and estimate things like dark energy expansion, things like that. And the other one is that there are a lot of supernovae or, or transient events that we think explode on and increase in brightness on timescales less than a couple of days. Those have been really hard to find in the past, and so if we can really quickly identify those and, and follow them up, we can get better data and we can better understand the physics of these events. What kind of features are you looking for? Or do you know which features to expect the random forest to pick out, or does it just pick some out and then you try to figure out what it learned after the fact? So this is a very great question because a lot of the machine learning type methods have been doing, like I said, photometric classification, right? So looking at color changes over time in these events. The research that I do is ignoring photometry entirely. So the question that I have been trying to answer is how well can we do classifying supernovae before you look at the supernova at all, just based on the environment that the supernova came from? Whoa, H how would that even be possible? There's no data from the actual object. So there have been empirical relations that have been found historically between supernovae and their host galaxies. For example, type 1a okay. supernovae are found in predominantly redder and older galaxies, and core collapse events are found predominantly in more metal-poor galaxies. So what we wanted to figure out is, can we construct a database of all of the host galaxies of all of these supernovae that we've discovered in the past, and then use all of the information of the photometry of the host galaxies to predict what kind of supernova is going to come from that galaxy? using a random forest. But the galaxy is so big. There are so many stars. Yes. So uh, it's a great point because there are local phenomena, local features that influence the explosion, but there are also these global correlations that have been identified. So we basically wanted to see how far can these global okay. uh, correlations take us. 
it actually kind of sounds like you are looking for a physical law rather than trying to extrapolate to say, like, for a given supernova, it will be this type of event then, right? Which I think is pretty cool that you could actually come up with some sort of, like, theoretical relation using random forests. Yeah, so, Will, you mentioned getting kind of feature importances out of a random forest, right? So this can shed some light on these physical correlations between the environment and the supernova, right? If we find a particular feature of the host galaxy to be really significant in predicting what supernova is going to come from it, then this sheds some light on the ways in which the environment influences the explosion, which as of right now is, is pretty hard to understand and study. This reminds me of that story that came out a while back that Target is able to predict when women are pregnant before they know that they're pregnant <laughs> because it looks for like slight changes in, in buying preferences that right. indicate like hormonal changes. <laughs> due to, to taste and, and things like that. And people were, you know, like outraged by this and, and thought it was like an invasion of privacy. But, you know, it is kind of useful. It's a, it's a possible tool for the medical industry, right? Right, yeah. I mean, if you were to, to conduct a poll, a random poll of different supernovae, they might find it a little invasive that we're predicting <laughs> what their explosion would look like before it, they explode. But uh, we, found it, we found it pretty accurate. So just to kind of jump into the methods a little bit, we developed a database of over 16,000 supernovae and the properties of their host galaxies and released this database and it's called, wait for it, Galaxies Hosting Supernovae and Other Transients or GHOST for short. Nice. What properties are available? I think you mentioned color. Are there others that are on your list? Yeah, so we pulled up all PanStars features of these host galaxies. So that includes color, estimates of the light profile, so uh, kind of morphological features, the estimated size of the host galaxy, obviously brightness, and then also the location of the supernova. So I will say we do get the location of the supernova, but the rest are all features from the host galaxy. And this is just publicly available data you can get. It is uh, now that I've compiled it and released the database. Oh, it wasn't public until you put it together. It was a publicly available in lots of different uh, sparse sources. But one of the big focuses of this research was to compile this massive database of the properties of the host galaxies. Very cool. Cool. So this is something that we can just go and log on to and peruse at our will if we want to. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Ghost.ncsa.illinois.edu. You can download the full cool. database and play around with the features yourself. That's awesome. We will link to that in the show notes. I know for planetary science, uh, NASA has made an enormous effort to collect a lot of publicly available data in one place. Is there such a thing for uh, supernovae? There are two main areas that have kind of been developed as the standard for supernovae. And one is the transient name server, which is, I think, the IAU standard now. And one is the okay. open supernova catalog. Transient name server is more official. So uh, generally, you're less likely to find spurious detections in that database. But open supernova catalog has a lot more detections. So I, I combined those two sources to get as many supernovae as I could. Cool. Did you end up having to clean your sample at all then if you were using possibly less reliable sources as well? Lots. Yeah, yeah. So as I'm sure we'll talk about in future episodes and in this episode, uh, data cleaning is a big aspect of machine learning, right? You don't want your machine to be learning the wrong things. And so there were a lot of classes that were just question marks in the data. There were a couple events that were cross-matched between the two catalogs. And also supernova naming is not standardized generally. So 
different surveys have different names for the same events. Cross-matching those and trying to figure out what corresponds to unique events was a, was a big part of the research. Yeah, that's got to be frustrating. <laughs> yeah. The long and winding road. <laughs> and that's part of the experience, right? It, dirty data is a real problem. And before right. you want to throw that all into the machine, you have to give it some look over by eye just to make sure. It's like the garbage in, garbage out yeah. adage, right? <laughs> yeah, you also mentioned that this works really well. Could you elaborate on what what you mean by that? Like, do you have numbers? <laughs> I, I can quantify that. So uh, we found that we achieved 70% accuracy distinguishing between core collapse and 1A supernovae. And again, this is including all the information from its host galaxy and the location of the supernova and nothing else. So... Generally, with random forests, you'll see accuracies of like in the 95, 97 percentile. Obviously, 70% is not at that accuracy. But again, you haven't looked at the spectrum at all or any photometry. Mm. So the hope is that for future research, we're going to start collecting data from the supernova and incorporate photometric classifiers with our classifier to say, before we've gotten any data, we're 70% sure it's going to be this. But now we have one data point, And now how does the prediction change? Seems darn impressive to me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank I, I just love this idea <laughs> that you can predict something before it happens. And like now you can go out and do it right on all the upcoming supernovae we don't know about yet. And then when they start to happen where you say they will, that's going to be quite the impressive feat. Right. Yeah. So it's actually really interesting because it's kind of like a, a chicken and egg problem where we want to simulate what our data is going to look like in these upcoming surveys so that we get really good algorithms the second the survey goes online. Mm -hmm. But for predicting what the data is going to look like, we have to generate realistic data sets. And so one of the applications of this research is trying to realistically make pictures of supernova in galaxies. And to do that, you need to have the correlations right where the supernova is going to go off. You've got to make sure the host galaxy looks the way you'd expect for that particular type of supernova, things like that. Hmm. Are you going to use GANs for those? We might. We might use GANs. We have talked about using GANs. Yeah. I don't remember what they stand for. General Generative adversarial, adversarial networks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That was close. Adversarial. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe maybe we'll machines talk don't play nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool that sounds awesome did you end up finding any particular correlations like if you have a really massive galaxy it'll tend to have this kind of supernova or, or were there any like very obvious correlations like that there were it's a great question so we did a feature importance we found color shape and location of the supernova in the galaxy were most important for distinguishing classes. And once we actually visualized some of these associations, we found that, for example, superluminous supernovae host galaxies were smaller and fainter than the rest of our galaxies. And this, oh, huh. this part of the research kind of bleeds into the caveat section, because in general, when, when you just take a picture of the host galaxies, it's hard to determine what properties that we collect in a catalog are intrinsic differences between the host galaxies and which ones are based on a redshift dependence of the supernova rates. So for example, if superluminous supernovae are all found at high redshift, then you're probably going to have host galaxy pictures that are fainter and smaller. And that doesn't reflect like a fundamental difference between the galaxies. It just reflects that those sources are further away. Does the decision tree not account for the redshift? It does not, no. And you can't tell it to? So we plugged in the features that are the observed photometry of the host galaxy. And you don't observe redshift? There is 
potentially a way to correct for like reddening, things like that. We did not attempt it in this research. Yeah, I forgot how hard it is to find redshift without spectroscopy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. It's a, it's a real good challenge you picked right here. Yeah. So disentangling the redshift dependence from fundamental differences between supernovae, I think is just going to be something for future work. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you got a long PhD still to go. <laughs> So we'll look <laughs> forward for to hearing about the updates. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, thanks for listening. Maybe later on the show. We'll see. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> All right. So I think we're about halfway through, which means that it's time for a favorite segment, the Astro Soundscape of the Machine Learning Data Science Fortnite. <laughs> so, <laughs> woo! so Today I brought a really cool sound. It's kind of a long clip, so I'm going to play a little from the beginning and a little from the end. And I was thinking maybe for our outro this time we could just play the full clip. Love it. Okay, so I'm going to play the beginning for a little bit first. towards the end. That's nice. Yeah, it's very peaceful, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I like that ending. Yeah. So what do you think it is? It's a sonification. Mm-hmm. There's no way that's a light curve. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a light curve. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess it is neutrino detections in one of those underground water caves. Oh, like ice cube? Yeah, one of those mm-hmm. sort of things. Mm, that's good i was gonna say my thought was that it was like continued flares from a star or something very peaceful flares (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can see that this is actually a sonification of climate change focused on a forest in the alexander archipelago which is a group of islands off the southern coast of alaska Uh, so it seemed a little bit suitable because we're talking about forests Mm. we love our forests (laughs) we do love our forests and the sound corresponds to five different conifer species with a different instrument for every species and the notes each represent a tree and the pitch and how hard the note is hit directly corresponds to the height and diameter of the tree wow so longer notes at a higher pitch correspond to older trees and dying trees are dropped notes that produce silent gaps huh um, so this is a sonification of data from the summers of 2011 and 2012. And as the recording goes on, it passes from the northern part of the archipelago to the southern part, where the decline has advanced the furthest, and there are a lot fewer young trees. So this is just sort of a sonification going from the north to the south. So at the beginning, there are lots and lots of trees, and then at the end, it gets kind of a little more solemn. There are fewer notes and more silences. 
That's beautiful, but also quite sad. I wonder how the song would change if you recorded like in five years and 10 years. My experience, the most beautiful things in life are always the most sad. Yeah. All that glitters, (laughs) etc. Beautiful. Yeah, this is from eight to nine years ago. So the difference to now, I imagine, would actually be noticeable to the ear. Yeah, It would be pretty interesting for someone to do that again. But really pretty recording. Cool sound. Yeah. (laughs) We heard the forest from the trees. We did hear the forest from the trees. (laughs) From all of the individual trees. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, it sounds like a good time to return back to our random forests that are full of many, many trees still. So, Will, could you tell us about the astrobite that you brought? Absolutely. It's called Using a Random Forest to Classify ASAS-SN Variable Stars. That pretty much sums it up. It's a great title because it says exactly what it's about. I think they call that assassin, right? Is that what they call it? I've only read it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This Astrobite was written by Wei Sears. The paper is by Jaya Shinge and all published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. So is this doing something very similar to what Alex did, but for variable stars? How did you know? Yes. (laughs) Very similar. Um... But yeah, variable stars are, in Alex's case, the the vermin of his data set. They get in the way of supernovae data. Nobody goes out looking for variable stars, but you find them inevitably because they vary. They look like supernovae in, in many obvious ways, and they're located everywhere that supernovae are. So they have to be removed from supernovae catalogs. But these authors actually found that they could turn them into their own scientific uh, value. You also mentioned that they're found in very similar areas that would make it really hard to be able to disentangle them from their host galaxies like I've been doing. So yeah, it seems very useful that you want to be able to find a way to throw them out of the data set before you even pass them in. Exactly. And given the fact that this is a classification issue, it's the perfect use for a random forest. Right. And the authors here, I assume, are not just using the galaxy that the stars are in, right? Are they using photometry instead? Or what kind of data do they get from Assassin? They get light curve data, and I believe that's all they put into their random forest classifier. Before we go into the nuts and bolts, I thought you guys might be curious as to why variable stars vary. Anybody know the answer? I learned about this at some point. (laughs) There's an instability strip where you have things happening in different layers of stars. I'd have to check my notes. (laughs) I thought all stars were variable to a certain threshold, but quote-unquote variable stars classification was just based on a certain threshold cut. Yeah, that's pretty much true. You both got a good piece of it there. Um, The sun is about 0.1% variable over its 11-year cycle. We're talking about much shorter cycle than that. These are evolved high-mass stars, typically. And what happens is the outer layers will puff up and then decrease in ionization. Things recombine, and the star becomes transparent. So it efficiently radiates energy away. So then it contracts back down because there's no radiation pressure holding it up. Um, Once it contracts, it then ionizes more as it heats back up. And as it ionizes, it becomes opaque. So the radiation doesn't get out. It gets trapped. And it puffs up the star and the process repeats. So this can happen on a similar time scale to supernovae. It can be as quick as as days or weeks. There are variable stars on lots of different time scales as well, right? Yes. So were they trying to distinguish between variable stars of different time scales? Or were they trying to distinguish between variable stars versus supernovae? Or what were they looking for? I was going to ask a similar question because I... I feel like I remember there's a massive hierarchy of different classes of variable stars based on exactly how it's variable. 
So, I mean, how many classes do they dig into? There are so many. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I can't speak to really what exactly distinguishes all these classes. There are dozens, you know, by the reading of the paper. So needless to say, the, the goal is to lump variable stars into those categories, not necessarily to distinguish variable stars from supernovae. Right. That they already do pretty efficiently. Their idea is we have this collection of things that look like the stuff we wanted, but are clearly not. We've already done a great job separating them out, but can we divide them into the classes that they represent? That's pretty cool, though, because Alex was, he was only looking at two classes, but it sounds like they're using like 20, <laughs> 30 classes. I mean, no, Alex, not to, not to talk down on your research. All I'm saying is I didn't even look at the supernova. <laughs> Just putting it out there. No, Alex's work is very impressive, but... It is pretty cool that they're looking at so many different classes. Were they able to get the algorithm to work well? Yeah, they did a pretty good job. Um, I just counted right now. It's, it is between 20 and 30 classes. Um, and so, yeah, these wow. are not familiar to me. These are not things that I've seen before. The challenge here is building their training set. That was the, the biggest challenge in this project from my reading of things. And the uh, assassin survey is incredible for generating light curves because it surveys the whole sky every two to three days down to 17th magnitude. So it gets all the bright stuff and they do tracking of objects day to day and produce a light curve. Could you elaborate more on why it's difficult to get a training set for these? Because they're like sinusoidal variations over some time scale, right? So is that just hard to fit for a huge number of objects or why is that difficult to get? Well, like we said earlier, a random forest is only as good as its training. So if you have some things in there that are like bad photometry where, you know, the telescope slewed at the wrong time and you have a cosmic ray or something else messed it up, you're going to train the decision trees on that data right. to account for it. So you're going to have a problem when you actually apply it. So to get a good random forest, you really want to make sure that you're inspecting your training data so you don't mistrain it and then misinterpret so it's, it's as hard as any other training. It just, there's overhead to it. And the way that they got through that is actually using another random forest. <laughs> okay. Wow. That's very meta. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so they, they can see the forest from the forest is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they need a forest to find their forest. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Can you explain how that works? <laughs> the way it works is they took all of the reject supernovae that were classified as variable stars. Maybe they are, maybe they are random junk. They're not supernovae. And they ran them through this code that somebody else developed on a different survey to distinguish variable stars from other things, you know. Reject supernova is going to be the name. It's going to be on my license plate. I'll start a band <laughs> or something. That's great. Sorry to derail. No, that's all right. So this other machine learning algorithm, it's, a, it's actually a random forest itself, classified the supernovae rejects into variables or, or other random things. And then they went through by eye and they fixed that categorization because a few bad things went through. It's not 100%. But when they go through by eye, they get it up to 100% accuracy. Uh, so then their training data has all of the features they're looking for the tree to be trained on. Since there are so many different classes for these objects that they're looking at in this study, how many objects do they need in their training set? Or how many do they use? They use in the range of 50 to 60,000. Yeah. That <laughs> sounds pretty big. It's fairly large. How does that yeah. compare to your training set, Alex? So we trained on uh, far fewer. I think we had 7,000 in training. Mm -hmm. And that was split evenly. 3,500 core collapse, 3,500 type 1As. Yeah. 
It makes sense. You probably don't need as large a sample for just distinguishing between two classes. Whereas if you were trying to split into all of the like 1A, 1B, 1C and all of those, then it might get trickier. <laughs> right. I'm wondering. So, for example, for supernovae, you, you get the light curve. It happens once and that's that's what you have, right? You have one shot to get it right. But right. I'm wondering if you could reduce your photometry for variable stars by like stacking the periodic signal or something to give you a higher signal to noise. Or is there any way that they improve hmm. the signal uh, instead of just passing in the photometry? You might not know that, but I'm just curious. That's an interesting idea. I mean, I can think of off the top of my head a million problems hmm. with that. Which yeah. is that you first have to identify the periodicity. And some of these are regular and some of them are irregular. So their periodicity isn't very strong. That's fair. And at that point, you're probably 75% of the way to classifying it anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So do they just put a bunch of light curves in and then just see what comes out? Or I guess what is, what is the workflow of their project? Yeah, the, the workflow is they take 100% of their training data and they divide it 80% actually for training, 20% yeah. for testing. And they want a testing set that's randomly drawn from that distribution to make sure that it's representative. And they threw in some non-variables into the training set too. So the decision trees would handle that and throw it off into their own branch of non-variables. Okay. How did they do? Now, in this case, what they compared is two things called the precision and the recall. The precision is 89%. What that means is that 11% of decisions are false positive. Okay. And then the recall, that's at 85% in their case, which means 15% of decisions are false negative. Is another way of understanding it. When you say false positive or false negative, is that saying a non-variable star was classified as a variable star? Or is it saying a variable star was classified as the wrong kind of variable star? The latter. A variable star was classified as the wrong type. That seems actually pretty good. I mean, it's not 99%, but it's not bad for a sorting algorithm where you don't actually have to do any tweaking by hand. Absolutely. And you look for these numbers to be in the same ballpark. If one is 20% and the other is 90%, that's kind of messed up. You don't want that. So this is pretty good. But the real boon of this new random forest is that it can be applied going forward on all incoming data. You don't have to you know, wait for it to build up. Just anything new that comes in from the assassin survey, they just throw it into this and it just adds it to a category. Do they need like a certain duration of the light curve for it to be accurate though, I would think? Or can they just tell from the initial slope from a few points? Yeah, I doubt they would be able to tell from just a few points. So I know in supernova classification, there's a distinction between a lot of previous methods that require the full light curve and then some that do real-time classification on the very first few points. I haven't heard about variable classification in real time. My guess would be that would be because you can look right back at the star and it's still variable in the same way. Right. And so maybe it's less important that you have only a couple of data points, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I think the periods tend to be short enough that it's not a big deal to get a longer duration of the light curve as well. Gotcha. That's my yeah. thinking, that they survey the sky so often that they can wait till it's complete before they even run it into, is this a supernovae or is this something else? And if it is something else, they can, you know, append the data to it until there's a period so that it can go through this classification scheme. Right. But I, I think your description is interesting because I feel like that connects to a lot of machine learning problems where you run into this wall of how do you quantify how well it did? There are tons of different metrics to use and you have to apply the metric that is specific to the question that you're trying to answer. Right. 
Well, thank you, Will, for that awesome summary of this really cool paper. Uh, it seems like random forests are kind of taking over in a lot of big surveys, which is pretty exciting to see. I really enjoyed learning about this. You know, if the fate of the world is take over by trees, I think I think I'll be okay with that. To wrap things up, we're going to go ahead with our one-sentence summary. So, Alex, could you start us off? To classify supernovae before they've even exploded for upcoming surveys, well, just ask the ghosts of events past. Very nice. (laughs) How about you, Will? Variable stars get in the way of supernovae searches like Alex's, but this team actually used a random forest algorithm to classify them, creating scientific value out of otherwise discarded information. So beautiful. We love recycling. Wow, yeah, that was a lot more (laughs) genuine than mine was. (laughs) Alex is just like, read my paper. (laughs) (laughs) I should have just read out the DOI. (laughs) So something that I definitely noticed as an overarching theme in this episode, besides random forests, was that you were both talking about transient sources. And I feel like I Mm. hear about machine learning for transient sources in these big surveys all the time. Is there a particular reason that these are so good specifically for transient sources? I think that transient searches are really conducive to machine learning for two reasons. They hit two main criteria where you would want to use machine learning. One, we have tons of data or about to have tons of data. And two, you can't use the methods that people have historically used to classify these events. So you're required to have this paradigm shift because you can no longer look at the spectra of these events, but you have tons Mm. of data in some form. And so the question becomes, can you just throw it into a machine learning method and see how well it does? I think that's why a lot of people are playing with them right now. But we're going to also have tons of data of like everything in the sky too, right? Like galaxies also. Is it just that Vera Rubin isn't going to go quite as deep for specific galaxies since it's looking at the entire sky? People might be working on this for galaxies. I just don't know. Yeah, my guess would be that classifying transient events influences the science that you can do with them and what you would want to do follow-up observations of. So, and I'm just speculating here, but I would think for... I don't know, if it's a high mass or a low mass galaxy, if it's an elliptical or if it's a spiral, you're generally going to want to get color, brightness, and then derived properties like star formation rate and metallicity. Uh, And that's going to be pretty standard across the board. But if you have, for example, a really short timescale, really rare supernova, then there are certain things that you're going to want to find out about that supernova that are different from if you have like a standard type 1A supernova. Right. And so I think the, the classes are really interesting to get right early and quickly. And it might not matter as much for, say, a galaxy. Although for variable stars, they keep varying, right? Although, I guess if they're irregular, maybe not. I don't know much about irregular variable stars. I don't either. I don't know that anyone does. (laughs) Okay, well, makes me feel a little better. (laughs) (laughs) You're in good company. (laughs) Yeah. I was also wondering, what are the drawbacks of random forests? So, like, what cases could you see them failing in each of these studies? Because I know for neural networks, it's helpful to think about the failure modes that you can expect and then to actually look specifically for those. But are there corresponding failure modes for random forests? One of the failure modes that the paper mentioned is that the groups you end up dividing things into are not evenly sized. So you'll have some groups that may be 10, 20% of the sample, and then others that are like 0.01% of the sample. And that's not particularly informative because you've broken those groups into something too small. But I guess it could be depending on what your training data is. It might be a training failure issue. 
Right. So what you're saying is if you have some class of objects that are super rare, then the algorithm might just say that they never exist and still be very accurate. Yes. Or it might say that something that really should be part of another group is its own group, even though it only has one or two members. That also makes it hard because if you don't accurately rebalance your classes, then the, the feature importances you might get out at the other end might be entirely nonsensical. But you can't easily rebalance hmm. them, right? Unless, I guess, you inject signals or something. But there are some objects that are just not very common. Yes, a great point. So uh, in that case, you would either want to, for like very, very small classes, you'd either want to just throw them out entirely, or you would try to find some kind of middle way undersampling the largest classes and oversampling the smallest classes to hopefully still learn a lot from the data, but not suffering from this kind of vastly mismatched data sizes problem. That's an interesting point. I mean, the mechanics of that are pretty unclear to me, but I would think with all of the variables you get to tune in how you build your forest, you should be able to specify that. So there's a there's a package that I used called SMOTE. It stands for Synthetic Minority Oversampling Technique. Oh, wow. Uh, and so that's just a package that finds a way to interpolate data points uh, for features of a class that you might have that have only a couple members so that you can generate synthetic data that hopefully more realistically approximates the full class with more data. I think this is kind of a recurring theme that's, you know, your model's only ever going to be as good as your data that you train it on. Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. yeah. That's why they spent so much time in this paper getting a good training set, even going so far as to use another machine learning algorithm to help <laughs> get it. Because it's really, you know, you can train this thing on real-time data, and then if you have to go in and check half of them by eye because you don't trust it or you think it missed something or it's just not that good, then what's the point? You sort of touched upon this in the intro, but on a scale of machine learning algorithms, do you think random forests are some of the easier or harder to interpret ones when you're just looking at the results and trying to figure out what they're actually telling you? I think they offer some intuition where neural nets do not. Uh, what I really appreciate about looking into these papers is seeing the bar graph they produce of the relative importance of each variable used for classification. And if it comports with my kind of understanding of the system, I could say, oh, well, okay, the machine did kind of what I think and it did it better. Uh, and if it doesn't, then it kind of makes you reassess what you thought was true about the system. That's kind of nice. Totally. Yeah, I, I agree. And also just to reiterate the fact that you can generate like a, a full individual tree and make sure that it's making cuts that reflect physical intuition. So uh, I had a class last semester called Fundamentals of Data Science, and we generated a random forest algorithm to predict whether or not a passenger survived on the Titanic Whoa. based on different aspects of that person. So the gender of the person, how much they paid for the ticket, things like that. So like what uh, cabin they were in. And then you could generate, the, I mean, it was a small tree, but you could generate the tree and make sure each cut, does that make more sense? Well, the richer people were more likely to survive because probably they were rushed out first because they were the rich people. And so trying to come up with like physical intuition to explain how some of these dichotomies were generated, I think is really nice. And you can't do that with a, with a neural net. I'm also wondering, because this is a classification algorithm, if random forests are ever just used for data exploration, where you like have no idea what classes you're expecting, or if there is some sort of other unsupervised learning method that you would do that with? So I think you wouldn't because it's supervised, right? So you have to pass in some training labels. Yeah. Whereas for something like k-means clustering or principal component analysis or t-sne or something like that, you could just generate a plot and look at it and see where the data falls. Yeah. 
I think that's more of what I'm thinking. That makes sense. So that's sort of like a data exploration version of random forest if you don't actually know what you're looking for. Right, so that's unsupervised learning. Yeah. Maybe we'll touch upon some of these. I don't know. I guess we'll see. <laughs> we'll see There's how so things. many of them to get through, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I guess it's good that we mentioned them here. These are good terms to look into if you're interested in classification problems in general. How many parts is this series? 12? 15? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Every other episode. We'll spend the rest of our PhDs talking about this. <laughs> we really could. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to spend the rest of my PhD talking about this. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> I think that's a good place to wrap up. So that concludes episode 22 of Astro Soundbites, the Stargazing Automata Part 2. If you want to read the one astrobite that we talked about today or Alex's research, then check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, then check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Thank mm-hmm. you.